Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech and standards. Who needs them? Well, so it it turns out if you want stuff to work with other stuff, you you need them. Because without standards, compatibility would be the exception, not the rule, especially between products from different manufacturers. Because of standards, you can use a USB cable from one company to connect to a computer built by a totally different company, and then connect that to a device built by a third company, and it can all work. But standards don't just magically pop into being. It's not like people just start building new technologies and then they all magically morph into a universal standard. Nope. We humans have to figure out what final form stuff should take. And then we have to cooperate to make sure everyone conforms to that decision. Sometimes a group of people from multiple disciplines will form a hopefully impartial committee whose job is to determine these things. Other times, things are a little more messy with a lot of give and take. I'm going to talk about a few of those other times. We can think of these as format wars. I've covered some format wars in the past. On May 1st, 2019, I published the episode Blu-ray versus HD DVD about how two different groups of manufacturers faced off in a fight to determine which format would succeed the DVD home media format. And spoiler alert for those who have been oblivious for more than a decade, it was Blu-ray that won. That story is pretty darn good, and it involves stuff like companies quickly switching alliances and a rapid descent into obsolescence for the poor HD DVD. Way back on June 6th, 2011, we published an episode called The Current Wars, describing the battle between George Westinghouse and the alternating current that he favored versus Thomas Edison and his direct current. This is another format war that achieved legendary status, complete with public demonstrations of the dangers of alternating current and a fierce competition to be the provider of electricity for the Chicago World's Fair. And in that case, alternating current would win out as the standard being used for long-distance transmission of electricity. So I'm not really going to go into those two stories in this episode, because I do have other episodes dedicated to those. We'll look at a few other instances of format wars, some of which I have touched on in the past. In fact, it would be good to start off with one of those, and it's a format war that was going on just as I was growing up as a kid in the 70s, the home video format war, which had several contenders. Now, the two big ones that most people have heard about are the two primary videocassette recorder formats, VHS and Betamax, and we will get to those. But first, I thought I would chat about a few other formats that made a go of it, but ultimately fell short of becoming the standard format for home video. So it's good to remember that before the 1970s, there really wasn't such a thing as home theater in the sense of being able to watch recorded media at home on any real scale. You could watch television broadcasts, but once a show was over, that was it. 
you would only see that show or that movie or whatever again if someone were to rerun it. Otherwise, it was just gone. The film experience was still largely one where you would go to a cinema and you would sit there and you would watch a film. The emergence of technology that would allow people to view recorded media on demand at home was a truly revolutionary one, and also one that caused more than a little hubbub in Hollywood as various studios grappled with the implications. Anyway, one of the technologies to emerge in this era, gradually anyway, was the Laserdisc. Now, this started out more than a decade earlier with a fellow named David Paul Gregg who came up with a means to record video and audio information onto a essentially a plastic disc. Uh, this case, the disc was transparent and in the original patent, which you can read if you want to. And the idea was really cool. You take a transparent disc and you encode video information onto it using a quote-unquote metallic deposit, essentially creating opaque areas on the disc that light cannot pass through. So, in a player, you would have a transducer, like a light sensor, on one side of the disc, and on the other side of the disc, you would have a light shining up through the disc. So as the disc spins, the light and the transducer keep pace with a spiral of data that has been encoded on the disc itself with these metallic deposits. The transducer ends up generating electricity depending on how much light is hitting it. So it varies as the metallic deposits pass in between the transducer and the light. And that gets converted into the electrical signals that go to be interpreted as a video signal. It's decoded that way. So Greg invented this technology in the early 1960s. He filed for a patent for it in 1967, received it in 1969. Other inventors made related advancements in technology that would go toward the foundations for what would become LaserDisc. MCA would purchase the rights to the patent from Gregg in the late 1960s. Meanwhile, the Dutch company Philips was hard at work on a similar technology, except this one used reflective discs rather than transparent ones. So a laser would shine a light onto a reflective surface of the disc, detecting sequences of little pits and lands. So a land is essentially a bit of the disc that hasn't been carved into a pit. The pits and lands would represent the information of the video recording. Now, these days we would call it just binary information, zeros and ones. Now, normally, this is where I would go into more detail about how all this works, but I've actually covered this type of technology fairly extensively in other episodes. It's the same basis for compact discs, which would come out a little bit later. Anyway, Philips and MCA joined forces to bring the technology to market. They first gave a public display of the technology in 1972, but it wouldn't be available for purchase until 1978, when it debuted under the name MCA DiscoVision. It was a very different time, my friends. Interestingly, according to the sources I found, it originally launched in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, and the very first film available on the format happens to be my favorite film of all time. It's also the movie that was number one at the box office the day I was born, Jaws. And yet, my family never owned a Laserdisc, so that's where my personal connection to this particular technology ends. The discs could hold 60 minutes of content per side, 
when it was in extended play mode. Uh, with extended play, the motor would rotate the disc at a slower speed. Standard play speed was faster and allowed for more features that you could use with the LaserDisc player, but you could only fit 30 minutes of content per side on the disc in standard play playback speed. And yes, this does mean that for a two-hour film with extended play, you would have to flip the disc over halfway through the movie. Though later on, uh, toward the tail end of the LaserDisc era, some players could actually automatically switch sides. You wouldn't have to manually do it. Sometimes films would include a special standard play disc with the extended play feature film, and the extra disc would include stuff like bonus footage and interviews and the sort of features that we would later come to expect on DVD releases. The LaserDisc format could provide superior video and sound compared to the VHS and Betamax formats, but it had a couple of major disadvantages. One is that it was far more expensive than cassette-based technologies, and when I get to those and tell you how much they cost, that's going to raise some eyebrows. But another drawback is that you couldn't record to a LaserDisc, so you were restricted to watching pre-recorded stuff from major studios. You would have to buy a movie or TV series or whatever on LaserDisc. You couldn't just, you know, record it off the television. That was a difference between that and cassettes. Cassettes, you could do that. And these drawbacks meant that fewer people would purchase LaserDisc players, which meant the technology couldn't really scale to a level where prices could drop significantly. The very last LaserDisc movie was in 2000. This was the last film printed to LaserDisc. That's interesting to me because DVDs were already on the market by 2000. And the last film on LaserDisc was Bringing Out the Dead, which is a Nicolas Cage film that I have never actually watched. But LaserDisc never made a huge impact on home video. It was kind of a, a cult favorite among a small group of enthusiasts, but it never had an enormous impact. It also became a little bit of a novelty in arcades, however, because it was the basis for games like Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. But that's another story. Another technology that took a stab at becoming a standard home video tech and failed was the Capacitance Electronic Disc Player, or CED, which was developed by RCA. Now, as I record this, I am actually looking right now at my old CED player, which may or may not be functional. I honestly don't know. I haven't plugged it in in years. Plus, I don't have a television with the proper connectors, so even if it works, I wouldn't be able to verify it anyway. But this is the technology that my family had, obviously, while I was growing up, though we only ever had a, a, a relatively small number of films for it, like Singing in the Rain, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, a couple of Woody Allen movies, that sort of thing. And the CED is a disc-based system, but unlike the LaserDisc, it's not an optical system. That means there's no laser shining on this disc. No, instead, these discs, which were housed inside these plastic envelopes that kind of made them look like a cross between a giant computer disc and a record album sleeve, 
Anyway, the, the actual discs inside the envelopes had very small grooves in them, just like a vinyl record album, but much smaller. And like an old record player, the CED player used a special needle to move through these grooves. However, instead of the needle vibrating and then transmitting those vibrations to a transducer that converts the vibrations into an electric signal, the CED player's needle and the disc in the player would complete an electronic circuit the needle would not actually make contact with the bottom of the groove on the disc, but the groove would curve up toward the bottom of the needle, or it would curve away from the needle. And that would affect the capacitance between the stylus and the disc itself. The changing capacitance would then affect a resonant circuit, which in turn would send the generated fluctuating signal to a decoder to transmit as video and audio. And I know it sounds super technical, but in reality it was using a quality of electricity as a sort of evolution of the old vinyl record technology. One advantage of the CED is that it wasn't as expensive to produce as VCRs, and definitely less expensive than Laserdisc players. The video and audio quality were around the same level as that for cassettes, maybe a little bit better, uh, but they definitely did not measure up to the superior quality of the Laserdisc format. But like Laserdiscs, you could not record programming to CED. You could only buy existing media and play it at home. Also, like Laserdiscs, you had to flip a movie halfway through because each side could only hold about an hour's worth of video. Uh, I seem to recall, although I have not verified this, that for Raiders of the Lost Ark, the point where we would have to flip the disc was right around the time where Sala would say to Indiana, They're digging in the wrong place! RCA had this technology in development as far back as the 1960s, but various problems within the company and the project in particular delayed it to market until the early 1980s. By that time, the Laserdisc was already on the market, and VHS and Betamax were well-established too, so CED really never stood a chance. RCA only would produce them for a couple of years before throwing in the towel. So... In a way, I own a piece of tech history, or as I like to call it, a very large paperweight. There were other media contenders besides CED and Laserdisc, but the real battle raged between Betamax, which was backed by Sony, and VHS, which was backed by JVC. Sony had hoped to create the standard format for home video. They tried to get buy-in from all the other manufacturers in the early 1970s, but JVC, which had been developing its own technology, held out and made the risky decision to back their competing format. The Betamax hit the market first in 1975. VHS would debut a about a year or so later, probably like early 1977, I believe. And while both formats recorded media to tape that was inside of a cassette, they were also incompatible with one another. The Betamax video cassettes were not as wide as the VHS, uh, but they were longer or taller, depending on how you're looking at them. And at first, the Betamax's faster playback speed resulted in a slightly superior resolution over the VHS format. So, you might think Betamax thus had the edge. It was better picture, right? But VHS had a couple of advantages of its own. 
One was that JVC chose to go with a less expensive set of components than Sony did, which kept the costs of production down, and that meant the company could sell VHS VCRs at a lower price point than Sony's Betamax VCRs. Now, when I say lower price, we have to remember that the VCR technology was crazy expensive when it first came out. Now, this is typical for new technologies, particularly in the area of media technologies, where the early examples are priced at a point where most of us can't afford it. And over time, due to stuff like early adopters and the scaling up of production, the price comes down to a point where we lowly peons can also enjoy the technology. When the Betamax first launched, the models ranged from just under $2,000 for the base model up to $2,295 for the top-end model. And this was 1975. So if we adjust that for inflation, let's see, that means that a top-end model of a Betamax machine would set you back more than $11,000 in today's money. Hachi machi, that's a princely sum and no mistake. But, but hey, I said that the VHS came in at a lower price, right? So what did those go for when they first came out? Well, the VHS-style VCRs retailed for between $1,000 and $1,400. So that's between $4,300 and $6,000 today. That is a hefty price to pay to watch my old Night Court tapes. But beyond that, a huge differentiator came down to recording time. With the original Betamax machines, users could only record one hour of content per tape. The original JVC VHS machines could record up to two hours of material onto a tape. And to be clear, this was more of a limitation on the machines than on the cassette tapes themselves. See, by running the tape more slowly through the machine, both for the recording and playback of media, you could cram more video content onto the cassettes. But you did this knowing that you were also compromising the video and audio quality. At slower speeds, like super slow speeds where you can cram like 10 hours of material onto one video cassette, you could end up having a lot of cross interference and other issues that would affect the quality of the audio and the video. Sony and JVC initially were loath to budge on this. They, they didn't really want to give on quality, but as JVC's approach was gaining more favor because it could record twice as much content per tape, Sony would push out new players and video cassettes that could hold more content. So JVC then responds the same way, or would allow other manufacturers like RCA to build VCRs capable of recording at slower tape speeds and thus more hours of content per tape. The VHS format got the edge and held it long enough that eventually Sony capitulated. This was a format war that was decided in the marketplace, rather than by a standards committee. And it was a long and costly war, both for the manufacturers and for consumers. For people who backed Betamax, they ended up supporting a format that eventually went obsolete, and switching over to a different format tends to be pretty irritating, both because it means that you got to spend more money on stuff like a new player, but you also have to figure out what to do with your library of content. Do you keep a working Betamax machine around? Or do you go ahead and replace all the films and shows that you've either recorded or bought 
on Betamax with new VHS copies. It is a mess, and it's one of the reasons standard committees form in the first place, to avoid that kind of situation. When we come back, we'll turn the clock back a good ways to talk about a totally different type of format war. All aboard! Now, I'm sure a lot of you have already figured out what format I'll be talking about based on my lame transition into the ad break earlier. We're going to talk about train railway gauges. That is, the distance between the inner edge of the two rails on a train railway. The standard gauge for most of the world is known as 1,435 millimeters, or four feet and eight and a half inches, because here in the good old USA, we just don't cotton to that there metric system, gosh darn it. And to be clear, that's not every single railway around the world, but more than half of them do conform to this. Now, there is a charming story that the whole reason that train rails are this distance from each other ultimately depends upon the rear ends of a pair of horses. And as I said, the story is charming, but not necessarily totally accurate, at least in the grand scheme of things. But let's go through the story anyway so we know where we're coming from. All right, so back in the days of the Roman Empire, you had Roman soldiers who would use chariots a lot in war or just to get around. And chariots would be pulled by a pair of horses. So by necessity, the chariot would need to accommodate two horses side by side in the front, which in turn meant that a chariot could only be so wide before it would become difficult to maneuver. The wheels needed to be wide apart enough to provide stability, but not so wide apart that you couldn't do stuff like take a turn easily. And generally, the distance between the two wheels of the chariot that would provide decent stability and maneuverability was about 4 feet 8 inches or so. Now, the Roman Empire needed to produce a good number of chariots. They were important for military conquests and for maintaining a presence in the large Roman Empire. The chariots all followed a fairly close set of standards. And all that chariot traffic on roads started to create ruts in the road. The wheels were wearing down paths in the roadways. And these were like little ditches where the, the wheels of the old chariots were just hitting the road over and over. Over time, the ruts get fairly deep, and then the Roman Empire falls. This has nothing to do with ruts, although I guess you could argue that the empire was in a rut. But uh, I suppose you could also argue that a few horses' rear ends were involved in the process as well. Anyway, flash forward to areas that had formerly been part of the Roman Empire. As people began to build more vehicles like wagons and carts and stuff, they tended to gravitate back to that 4 foot 8 inch distance between the wheels. Now, you could argue that this is because of those ruts, and that a cart with wheels that are closer together or further apart than that would have trouble navigating roads because the ruts are of a certain width, and if you're if you have one wheel in a rut and one wheel that's out of a rut, or you're constantly moving in and out of the ruts, it's not very easy going, your animal has to work harder, it's not efficient. That's how the story goes, and that probably does play a part, but another part is just the practical considerations that the Romans had made were still in play centuries later, and that 
really that had more to do with the limitations of relying on vehicles that are powered by using critters to haul them. Anyway, the story goes on to say that when inventors in England first started building steam engine locomotives, the tools they relied upon to build out rails were based on the early horse-drawn tram system, where you would have rails and a cart, but a horse would pull the cart along the rails, and that those, in turn, were based on, you know, the the old ruts in the roads, you know, based off the carts that had to go through those roads. And that, in turn, was based off the original Roman chariots and hardy-har-har. That means that train rails are the way they are because of the patooties of a pair of horses, which isn't 100% true. Now, it is true that some early railway companies would use existing carriage bodies that had been intended for use on roads, and then they swapped out the wheels on these carriages and put them with wheels that could ride on top of rails, like train cars. That was just plain practical. I mean, why would you spend all the money to reinvent the wheel, or at least the wheeled carriage, when you can just repurpose existing vehicles. But that's not the full story. George Stevenson, a 19th century engineer in England who came from truly humble origins, would be an early innovator with locomotives. Not the inventor, but he made a lot of uh, improvements with them. And he was creating powerful engines capable of transporting tons of coal long distances. At a pretty slow pace, uh, his early locomotive had a speed of around four miles per hour, or about six and a half kilometers per hour. Stevenson's machines ran on rails that were four feet, eight inches apart, at least in the early part of his career. But by 1826, when he and his son Robert began working on the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, he made the decision to go with a rail width of four feet, eight and a half inches. And this wasn't the first time that anyone had done that, but he had adjusted this largely because it helped with uh, turns. It, it prevented more bunching up when you had to take a turn with a long train. And there wasn't just one set of train gauges from the get-go. There were actually several competing train gauges uh, in the UK and then later in other parts of the world. Some of them gravitated towards Stevenson's four feet eight inches, with the official standard eventually settling on that four feet eight and a half inches. But there were some railways that had narrower tracks and some that had wider tracks. Uh, in the state of New York, there was an entire network of train tracks that were six feet wide. And the thinking at the time was that the trains on this network were going to be carrying even heavier loads and that a wider track would be best for that while also providing greater stability. Even in the UK, there were tons of different train gauges. The Great Western Railway, which linked London with regions in the southwest of England and then off to Wales in the west, had a much wider gauge of rails. Their rails were 7 feet 1 quarter inch apart, or 2,140 millimeters. Back in the United States, just before the Civil War, the Confederacy, or what would be the Confederacy, had a few different train gauges running through the South, and that was one of the big contributing factors to the South being less capable than the North during wartime. Meanwhile, up North, the states had largely gravitated toward that four foot, eight and a half inches as the standard, and that proved to be a huge advantage over the South when it came to supply chains and logistics. So what's the big deal anyway? Well, it's all about compatibility, like I said at the top of the show. 
These different rail gauges led to what engineers called break of gauge, meaning let's say you've got a route from point A to point C, and it passes through point B. And at point B, you have a change in gauge of railway lines. So from point A to point B, it's a narrower gauge. And from point B to point C, it's a wider gauge. Well, you can't take the same train all the way from point A to point C because the train can't run on a wider gauge. It has wheels that are in fixed positions on the bottom of the train. They're mounted on what we call wheel trucks here in the United States. In the UK, they're called bogies. They're at a fixed width. You cannot magically go further apart from one another or closer together. There are special train cars that can account for slight differences in rail gauge, but those would come later. So you're stuck with a solid frame. So one type of rail car can ride on one type of railroad track, but you have to switch if you're going to change gauges. So it doesn't take much imagination to see how this leads to a major problem. If you're transporting stuff, whether it's people or cargo, and you have to pass through one region that relies on one gauge width to another that has a different one, you got to change trains. For people, this can be a nuisance, and it might mean having to travel by carriage from one train depot to a different one in the same town. For cargo, it's a much larger hassle because you've got to offload the cargo from train number one, probably load it into some other form of transportation like wagons, then take that wagon or whatever to the other train, offload the wagon, and load it onto train number two. It is inefficient and wasteful, and it was clear that standardizing rail gauges would be a practical solution. Having one standard width would simplify matters and allow for the faster transportation of passengers and goods. The broad gauge of the Great Western Railroad in the UK and the so-called narrow gauge favored by Stevenson were going to duke it out over there across the pond. Here in America, we had a whole different host of different railroad ga gauges to contend with. Uh, the two that I was talking about earlier, that was just an example. There were like almost a dozen different rail gauges in the U.S. It was a mess. So it wasn't easy. The various parties involved all had a vested interest that their gauge would become the standard. For one thing, it would mean they wouldn't have to spend more money building out or buying new materials. And in some places, like Erie, Pennsylvania, there were other issues. You see, Erie marked the termination point for a couple of different railroads that had different gauges, which meant people traveling from, say, the East Coast to the Midwest might have to stop in Erie along the way, and that meant that there were always reliable jobs related to transferring passengers from one railway to another, or to accommodate people as they waited for the next outbound train, like restaurants and hotels. That break of gauge of Erie, Pennsylvania, was seen as a source of employment and revenue in many ways. So that was a major disincentive to move toward a standardized railway gauge. In fact, the people of Erie, Pennsylvania, took this pretty far. From December 1853 to February 1854, citizens and Erie politicians, which, I mean Erie, Pennsylvania, not spooky, spooky politicians, 
They tried to stop a move to standardize the tracks with the narrower of the two gauges. A railway company had bought controlling interest in another railway company, and the decision was they were going to rip up the wide gauge tracks and replace them with narrow gauge so that you would have a single gauge going through Erie, Pennsylvania. And they didn't like that. So things escalated. Uh, The mayor ended up ordering police to remove railroad tracks that violated ordinances that said the new tracks would not be allowed to cross city streets. Uh, Then the mayor started to bring on 100 quote-unquote special constables, or a brute squad in Princess Bride terms, to take it upon themselves to tear up railroad tracks, usually by the cover of darkness in the middle of the night, and things eventually would come to a head. The United States sent lawmen out there to calm things down, and eventually they did calm down. The standardized track was laid down and mostly left unmolested, though there would be trouble that would spring up occasionally over the next couple of years, just not on the scale of what had been called the Gage War. But again, this whole conflict had nothing to do with the actual battling standards. It had more to do with the consequences of settling on a single standard and removing that incompatibility. Without trains stopping in Erie by necessity, many local businesses saw a drop in revenue, and some jobs were eliminated altogether. Kind of reminds me of stories about how when highways would come in and bypass a traditional route, entire towns would kind of dry up and die. Well, the shift to standards uh, of rail gauges was gradual around the world. The UK passed a gauge act back in 1845 that set the standard at the four feet, eight and a half inches. The US moved more toward a standard after the Civil War, when much of the rail lines needed repairs. So the reunified United States took the opportunity to swap out the wider gauges in parts of the South with one closer to the Northern Standard. A little more than half the world uses that 1,435 millimeter as the standard gauge for railway lines. Uh, The other 45% or so of railways make up a mix of different gauges, with not a single, like, dominant one. With this format war, it was more practicality that guided most of the decisions rather than anything else. When we come back, we'll look at yet another war of formats. But first, let's take another quick break. One of the things that format wars often illustrate is how even something that is seemingly frivolous can be affected by a battle for standards. In the late 19th century, as railways were slowly conforming, for the most part, to the Stevenson standard, another format war began. Kind of. This one was more of a format conflict that was resolved fairly quickly, and then not that much longer afterward became more or less obsolete. And I am talking about player pianos. Yep, pianos that have a a mechanism that allows them to seemingly play themselves. And it's actually really fascinating. See, player pianos suck. That's not a judgment call. It's actually what they are doing. The old player pianos worked on a principle of pneumatics. Now, we usually think of pneumatic systems as using pressurized air to do work, to push against something, for example. And 
Player pianos do use pneumatics, only they do it by creating lower pressure inside the piano than the atmospheric pressure that's outside the piano, as opposed to pumping pressurized air through the system. It's the outside air rushing in that provides the pneumatic force. I'll explain how they work from a really high level. All right, so first let's think about the base of a player piano, the bottom of it. You would have a pair of pedals, and they weren't like sustained pedals the way you would find with classic pianos. They were actually foot pedals that would uh, power some bellows. Uh, later on, you would have electric motors that would do this, but the early ones used foot power. And so you would generate the suction needed for everything else to work by pedaling these pedals. You would alternate left, right, left, right, pumping air out of this piano. And uh, you've got a set of bellows for each pedal. So the left pedal has a bellows, the right pedal has a bellows. Now, as you do this motion where you're pumping left, right, left, right, there's actually a slight gap in suction as you're alternating. It's, it's not a continuous uh, suck, I guess is the way you could put it. So to compensate for that, player pianos typically have what was called a vacuum reservoir, essentially a sealed box. So as you pump, the bellows suck air, not just out of the piano, but out of the reservoir as well. And so as you would reach these little breaks where one foot is about to go down and the other foot's about to go up, that reservoir would allow for the continued air pressure that you needed. It would be uh, because there was a vacuum pumped into the reservoir, it would create the sucking uh, that you would normally have with the bellows. And so you keep this up, you keep on pedaling the entire time, and these bellows and the reservoir connect via hoses to uh, two other major components, perhaps more, but two ones for sure. One was an air motor, and an air motor is what it sounds like. It uses air to provide the force needed to make the motor turn. Uh, in this case, it was a device being powered by a vacuum. The vacuum suction causes the motor to rotate, and that rotational motion was transferred to a roll of piano paper, technically to a spindle that the roll of piano player uh, paper would sit on. It's hard to say piano player paper. Anyway, you put the, the, the roll of paper on the spindle and the rotating motor would provide the, the force necessary to rotate the paper. The second component that the bellows were pulling air from was what was called a track bar. Now this is a bar, it's above the keyboard uh, and it's typically made out of something like brass. And the roll of piano player paper would stretch across this bar, making contact with it. So while you're pumping the bellows, the holes in this track bar, there's a bunch of holes in it, uh, would be trying to suck in air, but the paper blocks the air from going through. However, the roll of piano player paper also has some holes in it, and occasionally those holes align with the holes in the track bar, and air can pass through. And it shouldn't surprise you to learn that those holes also correspond with specific notes on the piano. So you get the player piano started. You're pumping the bellows. And the suction goes to the air motor, which begins to turn. It pulls the player piano paper over this tracking bar that has suction. 
And whenever a hole in the paper lines up with a hole in that track bar, air passes through into the piano. Otherwise, the paper is blocking the air. So air rushes into the piano through the hole in the paper and the corresponding hole in the tracking bar. And each of those holes connects to a hose. And that hose goes to a pair of little pneumatic valves or bellows that correspond with a specific note, a specific piano key, or more appropriately, the hammer connected to the piano key. And a standard piano has 88 keys total. So a full player piano would have 88 of these little valves or bellows, at least, and possibly some extra ones for some cool other effects. So the air coming in powers that bellows or valve pairing, and that in turn connects to the striking hammer for the corresponding note and causes the hammer to strike the correct piano string with the appropriate amount of force. Uh, The force in old player pianos was just standard. You couldn't play loudly or softly with just a regular player piano without some alterations. So the player piano is constantly trying to suck air. The holes in the paper are where the air can pass through, and nearly all the early player pianos worked on this basic principle. But lots of companies were building them, and no one had yet settled on a standard size for the player piano roll. Some of them were wider than others. And some player pianos had a more limited range of notes, not covering the full 88 keys. Some used paper that was much wider than others, and that poses a problem. Because if you went out and you made the extravagant purchase of a player piano, let's say you own a bar in Tin Pan Alley, and you want this player piano in your bar, and then you want to go and buy the latest songs to play on this player piano you want to make sure that whatever format you're buying is compatible with the piano you have or else you've just wasted money. But with all the different sizes out there, that was complicated and you couldn't be sure unless you were paying really close attention that you were buying the right stuff. So if the paper was too narrow, it wasn't going to cover all the holes in the piano's track bar and you'd have a pretty hard time keeping suction up because a lot of air would be going through the uncovered holes. Uh, and Technically, they would be holding down a note, though that wouldn't be really noticeable after the beginning. And if the paper were too wide, it wouldn't fit on the spindle in the first place. And if the holes don't line up properly, the music would come out wrong. It'd be the wrong notes being played. Kind of like what it sounds like whenever I try to play piano. So from 1896, when Edwin Vody invented the first really practical player piano using a pneumatic system, all the way up to 1908... Various companies were making different style player pianos, and there were three major musical scales, one that had 65 notes, one that had 72 notes, and then one with all 88 notes of your typical piano. And there were a lot of different sizes of piano paper rolls all hitting the market. And that leads us to the great event known as the Buffalo Convention of December 10th, 1908. It was this convention that established the standard width for player piano rolls which was 286 millimeters or 11 and one quarter inches. In addition, they settled on two musical scales, the 65 note scale and then the full 88 note scale. Uh, Although both of those scales still used paper that was 11 and one quarter inches wide. Manufacturers fell in line. They built out new player pianos designed to hold a piano roll of that width. 
And that made it much easier to shop for player piano music because you didn't have to worry if it would fit the size of your player piano. And the world breathed a sigh of relief. By the way, if you want to hear an interesting example of player piano music, although this has been reinterpreted for a modern computerized piano, so it's not played on an old player piano, I recommend you check out the album Gershwin Plays Gershwin the Piano Rolls. Gershwin himself was said to have recorded these piano rolls over the course of like a decade. On some pieces, such as the famous Rhapsody in Blue, he overdubbed himself. So that meant he would play through Rhapsody in Blue on piano that would then end up corresponding the playing to punching holes in a roll of player piano paper. Then he would rewind the paper, put it back through, and play additional parts in sequence with his original playing, which allows a single player piano to play more notes at the same time than a human pianist would be able to manage on their own. It's like being able to play a four-handed piece all by yourself. The pieces on that album are fantastic, and they offer the chance to hear how Gershwin would have played these famous bits of music himself, particularly if he happened to have four hands, and I highly recommend it. Now, I've covered a lot of the other format wars in various episodes, like I mentioned before. I've talked about companies like Columbia and RCA and how they battled it out over vinyl records. You know, should the standard be 33 and one-third RPM? That was Columbia's standard. Or should it be 45 RPM with RCA's smaller records? That format war fizzled out not because one side capitulated, but rather because record player manufacturers eventually built turntables that could operate at either speed, which made both styles compatible with the same player machines, which kind of sidestepped the thing. And then the music industry started to make a shift from singles to albums, and that kind of dictated which form would end up taking precedence. And of course, I've talked about the early days of personal computers, when lots of companies battled it out with different hardware and operating systems. I mean, sure, you had Apple computers way back in the day, but you also had Commodore and Tandy and Atari and more. The format war would eventually shake out with two major players in the personal computer space, Apple with its Apple computers and later the Macintosh line, and then IBM, or rather IBM-compatible machines with MS-DOS and then Microsoft Windows, and then eventually IBM itself would get out of the PC market. But those would be the two dominating formats at that point. And there are lots of others, but I felt that these that I covered today were kind of fun ones. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And uh, I almost included another format war in this, but I realized that that would put me way over time. If you enjoyed this and you want to hear more about different format wars throughout the ages, let me know. Send me a message on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 